0: Guess what, ghouls and goblins? The Spook Boys have officially joined
1: Patreon. That's right, they The show as you know it will remain the same, ad-free, but our patrons will have exclusive access to bonus content. Interviews, franchise deep dives, even horror television. Wait, did you say television? You heard right, Sally. Becoming a patron means you're not only helping us keep the show running, but that it also remains available on all platforms and, again, ad-free. For more details, head on over to
0: patreon.com, where you can become an official member of the Spoop Troop today.
1: cold out there and dark and like man why did we decide to record in the alaskan not just wilderness we're out in the middle of fucking nowhere man what why Why are we recording out here
0: look beats me this was your fucking decision because lord knows this is colder than i have to deal with now
1: wait why are you naked and about to walk out the other door
0: outside what did you not see the fucking wendigo people out there that are like carrying their lawn chairs and their beer cooler they want us to come hang out
1: <laughs> oh no <laughs> they, they've got it <laughs> naked in the snow <laughs> <laughs> welcome to watch you dare horror movie podcast hosted by me the coward craven and my co-host movie monster boy aaron we to dissect the fears phobias and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres and discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike this week one of us came down with a cold it sounds like over the thanksgiving holidays a bit. <laughs> yeah so mm, oh yeah there's yeah this is a good time to to suggest uh, joining our patreon patreon.com slash watch if you dare just some
0: great asmr for everybody just
1: <laughs> uh, the nasally i mean it's pretty relevant for today's episode which absolutely i was thinking about that The download numbers are always kind of low for our Blood Rage episode, because it really is an episode just for us. Eh,
0: whatever. We're doing this for the love of the game, not
1: to hit fucking numbers. Exactly. That would be
0: nice, but that's not what we're doing this for.
1: Exactly, which is why we're doing The Last Winter, which I also think a lot of people (laughs) will see that title and be like, what the fuck? And then not download it. (laughs) i could tell when we do certain movies like okay this is gonna do pretty well this one's gonna do well like saw boom knew it was gonna do well the mist boom knew it was gonna do well because i always see that shit all over like horror twitter but like before you even suggested i didn't know what the fuck the last winner was <laughs> like i'd never heard of this movie i saw larry Fessenden directed it which i didn't know that yeah peek behind the curtain listeners this being our first december episode We didn't necessarily want to have both episodes be Christmas films this month, but we wanted the first one to be wintery-ish, and like, oh, let's just say we went really overboard with the winter theme on this one. (laughs) Yeah, we wanted
0: the seasonal feel, but obviously, like, peek behind the curtain again again, we technically are going to be doing two Christmas movies this year, one of which will be a commentary on Patreon, which you'll find out sooner or later what that is.
1: Again, Patreon.com slash Watch Dare. Only five bucks a month. Please join it. It's uh-huh. well over a dozen hours of content now. Oh,
0: yeah. It's good shit. I'll actually bring up our most recent episode here in a minute in my recommendations. But yeah, there's something about this time of year, especially Lord knows I am not used to the kind of cold that I get up here and I'm not even that far north, but it's more colder enough for that. I'm fucking miserable for the most part. So, like, watching this kind of movie where it's just claustrophobic from the, like, open landscape of just white blackout nothingness and everybody constantly just looking miserable because they actually filmed this on location. What a delight. What a refreshing, oh, this makes me feel right in the mood watching this freezing cold movie while I'm freezing cold and appreciating the fact that, again, they didn't just shoot this shit against a green screen, which is what netflix would be doing today if they were making larry Fezenden's the last winter so yeah i'm excited to talk about this because uh this is a very special and interesting piece of indie horror filmmaking
1: and uh i am excited about it too because this movie didn't quite hit with me uh as much as i wanted it to but i also have been fascinated about it since watching it it's been on my mind for several days now this is the most excited i've been about Airing both the good and the bad of what I thought about a movie since we did Neon Demon with Shelby and VP. Hell yeah. So, not that I think this movie is as controversial universally in terms of whether people love it or hate it, but it is just like a movie that on some levels did not work for me personally. But we'll get it, we'll get in all that. So, like usual, we're going to do our horror recommendations section now for any new listeners. This is where Aaron and I talk about other horror recommendations, be it other movies different from the one we're covering. TV shows, video games, books, comics, etc., anything more related. We've consumed lately, want to uh recommend to each other and hopefully your audience hears something that uh stands out and you want to check out yourselves. So uh Aaron, since it's, it's just you and I, you go first. What what do you got this week?
0: Cool. So just a quick throwaway. I rewatched just for the shit of it, The Devil's Advocate from 1997.
1: Hell yeah. <laughs> a young
2: attorney has the chance of a lifetime. Mill Chadwick Waters. We want you to come to New York. All expenses, first class, travel and lodging. You and your wife. Oh, my God. He will enter a place of wealth and ambition. We've got 40 partners vested at the moment. In addition to our corporate clients, we're currently representing about 25 foreign countries. He's got you scheduled for 15 minutes, so make the most of it. John Milton. Kevin Lomax. Well, what's that like one day you're putting them away next day you're setting them free it takes a little getting used to pays better though doesn't it Welcome to babylon ma speak of the devil <laughs> a world of power and seduction who's that with the senator controlled by one man i swear he can hear us hell he can smell us he will make your dreams come true walk him upstairs and now he will grant your fondest wish. I'm just warming my hands on your talent. You know what I see? I see the future of this law firm. He knows your greatest fear. Milton is into everything. Arms brokering, chemical weapons, toxic waste, money laundering for the Eastern Bloc. I mean, it goes on and on. They don't like it here, Kevin. And he knows the price of your soul. Let's make a play Who are you? Oh, I have so many names. I'm here on the ground with my nose in it since the whole thing began. God likes to watch. He's an absentee landlord. Keanu Reeves. He's always been there. I know that now. Al Pacino. As God sleeps late, we will win. It's my time now. (laughs) The Devil's Advocate.
0: This was directed by Taylor Hackford, um, who has had a varied and wildly interesting career, directing An Officer and a Gentleman, Dolores Claiborne, which is a Stephen King adaptation, Ray and the Comedian. This had a rewrite by Tony Gilroy, writer of fucking Michael Clayton, and... Rogue One and Andor, right? Like, this has a wild pedigree to it. Of course, this movie is Keanu Reeves, young, idealistic, chomping at the bit to climb the ladder defense attorney. His wife, played by Charlize Theron, both of whom have terrible southern accents in this movie, because they were, like, from Gainesville, Florida. They kind of get plucked to go to new york city the whore of babylon herself and work for this law firm that is run by al pacino whose name happens to be john milton (laughs) Uh, not
1: at all a giveaway of who he plays in this movie i forgot his name was john milton so i love this movie but it has been a minute since i've watched it yeah and what's
0: wild too is if you just had those three leads cool fine whatever but then you've also got Tamara Tooney, Craig T. Nelson, Connie Nielsen, Jeffrey Jones, like you've got a shitload of character actors in this thing as well. It's fucking ridiculous. It's exactly what you think it is, which is just little by little, Keanu Reeves gets kind of enticed into the lifestyle of these big hotshot New York lawyers and the power and access that they have. And ultimately, yes, Al Pacino is the fucking devil. Yeah,
1: and it's not really hidden no, either. Not at like all. That's like not it's like all over the marketing. That that's the twist. Yeah, I
0: do love though. Spoiler alert: the fucking end of this movie is just Al Pacino's mug licking his teeth and laughing like ha 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 ha, while there's like a fucking fireball over his face. Fade to black, and it's playing sympathy for the devil like what the fuck is this ridiculous movie but this was a major cable staple oh yeah when we were growing up this was yep. all over fucking tv
1: i saw that one scene kind of young and it fucked me up for a little while they're trying on like dresses <laughs> yeah. they're on, and the other woman and her face becomes all demonic for a second that jump scare always fucked me up as a little kid so on that
0: note i was watching this and i think this might honestly be the first time I've seen it uncensored for TV. You know, so I didn't realize how much nudity was actually in this movie. Dear Lord, if you want to catch any of the female leads in this buck-ass naked, there you go. But that scene in particular where the women are like trying on clothes at the store, Tamra Tooney's like, oh yeah, Dr. So-and-so gave me my new tits, they're great. Take a feel, Charlize Theron, and she's like, "What?" (laughs) And I was watching this while I was cooking. This was like totally a fucking kitchen iPad movie, right? (laughs) And at that moment, Heather like called from the other room, like, "What the fuck are you watching?" (laughs) But dear lord, that movie is ridiculous. Delroy Lindo shows up as like a voodoo priest for one like weird plot tangent. There's like all these the Omen style deaths that occur. It's insane, and there's, of course, a lot of bad late 90s CGI that is kind of laughable now, but I totally get why this movie was such a successful programmer at the time when it came out, Um, but man, this is case in point the kind of movie that does not get made anymore. Yeah, A horror movie with this kind of cast, with this kind of budget, that's a major studio movie, man oh man, that's such a rarity nowadays, and this was just some sunday afternoon shit back in 1997
1: and uh unfortunately uh jeffrey jones is also one of the top held in this cast too so yeah
0: yeah <laughs> second thing i'll bring up real quick i have started and i usually don't talk about tv shit until like i'm done with it so i'll be pretty brief with this but through circumstance sometimes in and out of my control I have kept up with all of the current legendary pictures, Godzilla, King Kong, Monsters, Universe movies over the last decade. Went and saw the Gareth Edwards Godzilla movie on like a work trip with coworkers years ago when it came out. Also saw Kong Skull Island with some co-workers a couple of years later, and that was a fucking blast because that movie is ridiculous. I saw, like, the last one, Kong versus Godzilla, when I was commuting and was just like, fuck it, I'm staying in Hattiesburg and uh, I'm gonna go see a movie by myself. I've just kept up with all these, just for whatever reason. And, like, largely, they're fun, but they're not good, right? This is the definition of popcorn trash. And, you know, I'm not gonna be fucking precious about, the old Toho Godzilla movies that I grew up watching, because let's be real, they're also popcorn trash. They're fun, right? Monarch Legacy of Monsters, which is a TV show that Legendary Pictures has just recently put out that is really fully tying all of this shit together. The world
2: is on fire. I decided to do something about it. dreams, ambitions. The mission was to protect their world and ours. That's what we wanted Monarch to be, instead of chasing monsters. If you come with me, you'll know everything, I promise.
0: What? I've never. So, Monarch is the weird extra governmental agency that's been looking into all the monster shit for decades, right? This show on Apple TV Plus that Legendary Pictures made.
1: Oh, it literally just started. Okay. There's only three episodes out. There's only three
0: episodes in, like as of us recording. The next episode is actually coming out tomorrow night. This show is being run by Chris Black who did a lot of Star Trek Enterprise, Outcast, the Robert Kirkman AMC adaptation of his comic series, and Severance, which was a big Apple TV Plus series recently, right? And then fucking comic book writer Matt Fraction. Okay. They're yeah. the showrunners of this whole thing. So the storyline takes place all over the fucking timeline from like World War II all the way through present day. The present day story is a young woman played by Anna Sawai. She goes to Japan to track down her father, who like peered right after the first Godzilla attack on San Francisco. And this is all like canonically happening when the movies came out and everything. Interesting. So she was there in San Francisco during the first Godzilla movie, right? She goes to Japan to track down her dad who has since disappeared discovers that he had a whole entirely other family in japan and that she has a half-brother played by ren watabe they discover that he was working for monarch this whole time and that he has all kinds of fucking weird crazy secrets they end up teaming up with the half-brother's ex-girlfriend played by kiersey clemens so you have those three young people in the modern timeline now flash back to, like, just post-World War II, there is a young doctor played by Marie Yamamoto, and then Anders Holm from fucking Workaholics, <laughs> and Wyatt Russell, fucking Kurt Russell's son, as the military head. Of course he is. Kind of yeah. babysitting these two eggheads as they all go looking for monsters. And so they're kind of founding monarch and getting the u.s government involved and all this other
1: bullshit Uh, of course the guy who plays u.s agent would be the like military guy in this so here's where the even better twist is in the modern day timeline the
0: kids are like oh shit we need to go meet up with my dad's old contact who was like a father to him Same character as Wyatt Russell, but played by Kurt Russell in the current timeline. (laughs) dad. That's great. (laughs) So that's pretty fucking great that they're both playing like a young and old version of the same character. Yeah, that's cool. There has been a pretty decent amount of kaiju
1: shit. Yeah, I was going to say, when you were first bringing this up, I thought you were about to talk about Godzilla minus one. Not yet. That is something
0: I am like deeply, deeply looking forward to, but uh, I have not had a chance to check it out.
1: Apparently that movie kicks all kinds of ass, so.
0: Oh, look, after fucking Shin Godzilla a few years ago I'm down I'm like diggity down for all these new kind of weird takes on Godzilla so yeah this show has been a lot of fun so far it's fun bouncing around following kind of all this government conspiracy shit it's fun kind of seeing all this alternate history and just the ideas of how world society would legitimately react in the revelation of Oh, there are giant monsters on the planet with us. (laughs) Yeah. And any minute they can show up and destroy an entire fucking city and kill thousands of people. Those kinds of aspects of world building are very interesting in this show. There is occasionally some sketchy green screen stuff because they're bouncing all over the fucking world in this show. But I'm genuinely surprised by like how good the effects are overall legendary is clearly like really throwing some money behind this production it looks great we have not seen any like kaiju on kaiju fighting action yet but i'm sure they're building up to a lot of that so it's fun
1: but in this world all of them are real like mothra yeah totally like all of them yeah
0: king Ghidorah, rodan mothra have all been introduced in the like last couple of movies i'm guessing
1: king kong is gonna show up at some point as like very possible kong shows up I mean,
0: the like cold open of the first episode is john goodman his character from kong skull island well there
1: you go (laughs) throwing
0: you know a bag of evidence tapes into the ocean you know as he's being chased by a giant crab spider you know like it fully ties into all this other stuff
1: yeah king kong doesn't make an appearance then so oh totally <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah
0: so that's a lot of fun that's on apple tv plus which i believe they're still just giving away fucking subs to that like candy anytime that you buy something new apple so chances are If you've bought a new Apple product in the last year, you might have Apple TV Plus and not not even even realize it. it. So definitely check that show out. It's a lot of fun. It's dropping every week on Wednesday. I
1: don't think we've done a Kaiju movie yet. No, not yet.
0: There are very few of those that really, truly skew into horror. I think the only one that I've pitched you on was the original Gojira Godzilla from the 1950s, right? Because that really is a fucking horror movie with a lot yeah. of social commentary and political commentary and everything else. Yeah,
1: it depends on the movie, because there are some that are just straight sci-fi action, but I feel like there are others that are like horror or horror adjacent, at least, that I think yeah. we could do. So, But
0: yeah, rest assured, listeners, we will not be discussing Minya blowing weird radioactive bubbles. So, anyway, yeah, last thing I'll bring up Because I mentioned this on our recent Patreon episode that would have dropped this last week. I finished Alan Wake. Okay. It began with a dream.
2: Alan Wake. Oh god, I am your biggest fan.
0: This would make a wonderful setting for a book.
2: We're supposed to be on vacation, Alice. I wish you a good stay in my cabin. I'll come by later to check how you've settled in. And to meet your wife. Just the way it was on that page. It'll come back for me. There's something special about this place. The lake, it, it does something to the works of art created here. It makes them come true. No, it's not.
0: This was a 2010 game from remedy entertainment uh written by and created by sam lake who also did the max Payne games he also did some of these recent games like quantum break and control which we have both talked about and talk about further on our recent Mm -hmm. patreon app
1: yep quite a bit
0: this game was remastered in fall of 2021 and i got it on a sale like sometime in this last year and just it's been on my list of shit to play well now that there's Alan Wake two, I figured okay, this would be the best time to like go ahead and pick this up. And I'll be honest, great story. Had a blast with the story. It at times is a little bit vague and hard to follow, but the story is great. The gameplay is rough. Yeah, it's tough going back to an old game like that because you really do realize how clunky it is.
1: Has that Mass Effect one problem? Like, yes, the story is amazing the world is amazing you love toughing it out just to experience that but the gameplay has aged like milk
0: <laughs> yeah and I kind of slogged through it because man it gets repetitive it is a lot of I've got to meet this kidnapper in the forest by the lake okay I'm gonna fight my way through all these lumberjack smoke demons that got I kill with my magic flashlight yeah gotta light <laughs> gotta light Get to Lake. Oh, the kidnapper actually wants me to meet him at this truck stop that's on the other side of the lake. It's just a lot of go here, go there, go here, go there. Oops, you crashed your car again. Now you don't have your gun or your flashlight or any of your gear. Start over. It's very clunky, man. But it is a short game. I mean, I played the entire thing all the way through. I was very thorough. I think I burned right at 20 hours playing the entire game.
1: Yeah, that sounds about
0: right. It's broken up into six episodes, in air quotes. Um, they're very much kind of narratively telling this like a TV show.
1: So I remember when it was first coming out, that was like a huge marketing thing behind it. Was that Yes. It's like playing through Twin Peaks is basically like the big marketing around 2010, 2009, when it was yeah. being released. And on that note,
0: boy, oh boy... There's so much fucking Twin Peaks in this game because you are going to a small Pacific Northwest logging town where there is a cutesy diner and Mm. a trailer (laughs) park and all these weird people like the old doctor man who goes fishing and brings a fish into the police room while he's sewing your head wound up you meet the like weird old lady with glasses who's cradling a lantern
1: through the entire game like it's just so 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 much <laughs> twin Peaks. Shit. i remember so like listeners aaron sent me a screenshot where i think it's like a part in the game where you're like in the police station break room or meeting room and it looks almost exactly like the one in twin peaks the only thing
0: <laughs> missing was a spread of donuts yeah you know like it's
1: exactly the
0: same you're in the like Trailer of the cute waitress gal who works at the diner and she has a cookbook on her kitchen counter that's like seventy two fun and exciting ways to cook corn, <laughs> okay, but the story is very cool. It basically follows a fiction writer kind of similar to Stephen King, who goes to this small town with his wife as a refuge so he could start writing again and kind of get past his writer's block. well, as soon as they get there. All this weird shit starts happening and his wife disappears. So he's trying to find his wife. And the whole thing ends up being this crazy gateway nexus to pocket dimension shit. And everything that he's writing is coming true somehow, but he's already written this manuscript in the future and just finding it in the past. There is this evil dark force entity that is kind of infecting the town little by little. It's a very cool world. I think the thing I'll say is this as much as I enjoyed the story, I don't think I would have enjoyed this as much had I not previously played Control. Yeah. Because Control that's fair. gave me so much context for what I'm actually looking at and what everything is. This game is just talking about, like, oh, the darkness is coming for us, the darkness is infecting everything. I don't understand why this guy in a diving suit is floating around in my dreams. But are they dreams? Who knows? Like, there's just a lot of that kind of shit. And I really only understood what was happening because I've played Control, where everything is really kind of spelled out better. The best analogy that I have, and you'll get this, I guess, because you've played both games. And for listeners, like, this will make sense because I'm talking about movies. I love E.T., E.T. is great. E.T. is amazing. It's a great movie about an alien, right? And just this boy in a small town finding an alien and becoming friends with an alien and all the adventures they get up to, right? Wonderful movie. But like, we don't know anything about E.T. We don't know where he's from. We don't know what their fucking race is all about or what their purpose on coming to Earth is. You don't learn anything about his fucking culture you don't learn any of the details around the alien which is kind of the whole focal point of this movie obviously that's not the point the point is the relationship between the characters right but it's still one of the things where like none of that is explained it's not meant to right and that's kind of how i feel about this game where like the point of the game is alan wake getting past his creative block by experiencing all this high weirdness and he's slowly repairing the relationship with his wife by like going through this fucking trauma right (laughs) but then like control imagine like men in black where all of a sudden you realize oh shit so aliens are like a whole thing we've always known about aliens there's a whole government agency that's entire job is just to deal with aliens and manage aliens here on earth and deal with aliens showing up and why they're here and threats and stopping them and cataloging alien shit and using alien technology it's all hiding in plain sight the general populace has no idea that any of this is going on and we have to keep that veil of illusion going that's kind of the comparison As alan wake feels like et in terms of What's actually going on compared to like Control, which is Men in Black, where you fully understand all the (laughs) like, oh shit. Aliens is like a big fucking thing, apparently, and it's been here this whole time, right?
1: Yeah, ET species isn't even on our radar. Exactly. Yeah, there's other species we need to worry about.
0: And so that's kind of the thing even with Control is you find out in that game, oh yeah, there was this fucking incident in Bright Falls involving this writer named Alan Wake. Oops, here's the paperwork on that incident Mm -hmm. that you'll just (laughs) randomly find throughout the game. Meanwhile, there's a gajillion other more crazy things happening, so I think it's a game that is worth playing if you want to be a completionist and you like that general world. If you plan on playing Alan Wake 2, I would still suggest going ahead and doing it.
1: And if you don't want to play Alan Wake, if it's age too much, there are plenty of people who have, on YouTube, have done recap videos to just give you the full story yeah. of Alan Wake before you play Alan Wake 2. Apparently, Alan Wake 2 is uh, not just phenomenal amazing yeah. but like leaps and bounds better than than the first game and arguably better than control
0: i've had multiple other friends of ours say like yo this game's fucking great you gotta play it so yeah it's all my list of shit to get to
1: i don't think it'll win game of the year but it's definitely in the running now because this is already a crazy stacked year but yeah it uh it definitely kind of came out at the tail end of this year and kind of blew everybody's mind away which yeah a lot of people knew that was going to happen but it's been a minute since we've had an Alan Wake game, and they tried Quantum Break or whatever the hell that game was, and that was kind of meh, and Control was amazing. I just learned that Quantum
0: Break is apparently slightly reworked from a failed Alan Wake 2 that like never
1: happened. Yeah, and there was like a rumor going around that that game also takes place in this shared universe, but then they've kind of also shot that down and are saying it's its yeah. own thing, so Who knows, but like that game wasn't referenced in Control as far as I know.
0: Yeah. Well, the last thing I'll say about it is, in this age now, where video games are being taken seriously as material to be adapted for TV and
1: film, right? And also are being remade themselves in the same way that TV and film remake shit now.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, so we just had The Last of Us on HBO. They just put out the first trailer today for the Fallout TV show that's on Amazon, and apparently the early reviews are, like, really fucking
1: glowing. Apparently the Twisted Metal uh, show wasn't bad either. Yeah.
0: So, you know, that's finally happening. I think you just have the right generation of people who grew up with these properties. Who can now write. That are now in the (laughs) entertainment industry and making decisions, right? But, uh, yeah, a TV series of Alan Wake was announced in 2018. As of spring last year, 2022, they announced that AMC had the rights to it. So, shrug.
1: Who knows? We'll see. I'm guessing COVID cast it into development hell for a little while. So,
0: probably so. Huh. But I would bet. And then too, the strike. <laughs> with yeah, exactly. With as big of a success as the second game has been, I would bet we'll probably see that show get on the fast track now that the strikes are done.
1: And I think we are going to start seeing an influx in the same way we saw with superheroes back in like 2008, yeah. 2009. We're going to
0: start getting video game video adaptations,
1: game adaptations now. Yeah. And not just stuff like the Mario movie, which was an animated, almost kind of direct, actual live action. I mean... Well, that plus, right? Yeah. Who the fuck would have told me that they would have been able to pull off a Twisted Metal live action adaptation and it was actually not bad? Yeah. Twisted have- Metal. Really? Hey... <laughs> There's so much out there for video games that have
0: been untouched. Look, remember a couple years ago? I say a couple, it was like a decade ago when everybody was like the hottest new craze board games you know, <laughs> clue came out in the 80s well guess what we got battleship now and we're doing fucking ridley scott's monopoly and just all this bullshit
1: <laughs> but battleship <laughs> failed miserably and then i think they kind of stopped for a second and then followed through yeah that. they fucking <laughs>
0: realized in between fucking hitting rails of coke oh yeah what did we do oops
1: never tell you that savannah was talking to me one time this was back when we were dating And she just had Battleship on the hotel TV randomly when she was rotating (laughs) through somewhere else. And she thought it was a comedy. She didn't realize it was actually (laughs) trying to be a serious action movie. Because I told her, yeah, that's like Michael Bay-esque action movie adaptation of the board game. Yeah, I want to say it was Peter Berg that directed that one. Yeah, and she was like, wait a minute, an action movie? I was like, yeah. She's like, I thought it was a comedy the entire time. (laughs) (laughs) No, what, you don't take Rihanna seriously. As... That, that was part of why she thought it was a comedy. She thought Rihanna was doing a bit. Yeah. But yeah. Oops. Well, that's all I have to talk about. Uh, what have you got? So I've got two movies. Both of them we'll cover. One of them we'll cover maybe on our main show and the other would probably be a Patreon. But I'll start with the one that I think we should do on our main show down the line. Yet again, one of those slashers that are kind of underrated. I think there's a lot more on this movie's mind than I thought when I was really going into it it's 1980s Don't Go in the House yeah, written and okay. directed by Joseph Ellison.
2: No you're a bad boy. You're evil and you must be punished. Yeah. When we get home. When we're alone. Thanks a lot. This is Linda. I wanted you to meet her before I introduce her to the others.
1: Flamethrower Basement. (laughs) Flamethrower Basement, yeah. So what led me to this was I saw back when we did um, House on Sorority Row with Whitney. Go check that out and go check out Whitney's podcast, True Crime Campfire. It's great shit. But uh, when we did that episode, I saw that Tarantino at the first Tarantino Fest or something aired that horror movie and this horror movie, Don't Go in the House. Yeah, And I was like, huh, interesting. And it's always been on my radar as underrated slashers that you should maybe check out. So I finally sat down and watched it, and I enjoyed it way more than I thought I would. It is definitely a riff on a lot of things, you know? Kind of going back to like what we were joking with uh, Nate and Tyler on our last episode on Blood Rage. How many slashers are about mother relationships? And then all of us are like, all of them, basically. <laughs> yeah. Here's another one between a son and a mother. It's a very weird, interesting, kind of transgressive look at that idea. Once again, it's half like a play on Psycho and another half of a play on Maniac, even though I think Maniac yeah. technically came out after this movie did. But like Maniac, where the main character is the killer himself, and he's not a good person, but it's fascinating to watch him go about his day to day. He's played by Dan Grimaldi, which most people will know from The Sopranos. Uh, He played a bit part through The Sopranos, but he's been in a bunch of other stuff. But he does an amazing job in this movie as basically being the serial killer character. Again, it does borrow a lot from Psycho, but the riffs it's riffing on are good. It doesn't feel like just ripoffs of stuff, and it's still doing a lot of interesting original things. To give you an idea, this guy is obsessed with fire. He's a pyromaniac. He works at a boil room of a factory. After an accident happens, and one of his colleagues gets set on fire from, like, an explosion. He goes home to, like, this dilapidated Victorian mansion that he lives in with his mother. He discovers that while he was away that his mom died, maybe from a heart attack Uh whatsoever. And he just has this weird mental breakdown, like, where he's free of her, but then at the same time, the abuse that she put him through, like, He's still attached to her. He, like, burns her corpse to purify her, but then he keeps her corpse around the house, kind of like Psycho, and, like, dresses her up and, like, talks to her. He starts hearing this voice. The movie starts off with it like, oh, he's just having a mental breakdown. This is all in his head. But as the movie progresses, and by the end, you're not entirely sure if there's some weird supernatural element going on with the voice in his head, and then, like, him having visions of his dead mother and later the dead women throughout his house the movie follows this guy after this abducting women bringing them back to his house and he's built his own like boiler room in the basement and he dresses himself in a flame retardant suit that's his slasher I guess get up and he has a homemade flamethrower he ties them up naked and then burns them alive pretty fucked up like it's some pretty fucked up shit
0: this is definitely not one that is easy to watch yeah but it's kind of like maniac where I feel like there's actually some shit that's going on under the surface that's worth observing, yeah, and dissecting, and it's not all just fucking sadism and hatred and violence towards women, like it's a lot of that, but you know, I think that there is more going on that's worth having the discussion
1: about. Well, the first victim he has is the one where you really see the full process, but the camera even cuts it. Like, you never actually see any nudity, even though she is tied up naked, the way the cameras.
0: nah, nah you you must have seen a, an edited version of this movie, because...
1: Uh, I watched it on Tubi.
0: Then you must be seeing the U.S. home video version.
1: Of Maybe like I did. The
0: full uncensored version of this is full-blown nudity. Oh, okay. Full-blown, like, redhead bush,
1: yeah. So I, uh, I need to go watch the unedited version, too, then, because... I watched whatever was on Tubi, so it must be the US-edited one. Either way, it's still fucked up, and weirdly enough, in the same way that you had that criticism of X of for what it's about, the premise, it doesn't quite go there all the way like in that transgressive way. Maybe it's just because I watched the us Edit. Maybe like, if I watch the unedited, it'll appease that fucked up part of me that kind of wants it to be just a little bit more transgressive, even though it's not an easy watch already.
0: Yeah, it's skeezy for sure. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. say
1: it's quite as skeezy as Maniac. It also ends in a very similar way as Maniac, funny enough, yeah. uh, which I won't give away because I want us to cover Maniac too. But it has an interesting, again, examination of, of, of a trope that is beaten to the ground in slasher movies of a mother son relationship. But like this one's still interesting in that the mother was super Christian, but in that way of everyone is dirty, yeah. has evil in them, and I must burn the evil out of you. And as a boy she would burn him with the stovetop to like burn the evil out of him yeah
0: she's the carry mom of this movie
1: yeah so like his wires of course get crossed where like it's kind of implied he gets off by like burning women really alive what he does with their corpses because he doesn't get rid of the corpse he keeps the charred corpses and like kind of what he does with them throughout the movie is really fucked up and later on when he's like having a conversation in that Horror Room, as I like to call It's some great acting on Dan Grimaldi's part, by the way, but it is what the fuck. Yeah. If anything, my only other minor gripe, too, is it's not quite as tight or well shot as a psycho, and then again, it's not as transgressive as a maniac. No,
0: it's very rough on the edges.
1: So, like, there's this bit where, like, he's going to meet his co-worker friend who finally like, gets him to come out of the house because he's trying to be his friend. He thinks Donnie, who's the serial killer character we're following, <laughs> he's cheating on his wife apparently, and one of his mistresses has a friend he's trying to bro him out to. And he has this whole scene where he like goes clothes shopping. And I think the movie was trying to show like how awkward he is and how like he's been such a shut-in with his mom that like he doesn't know how to handle himself in situations. But like that whole scene took way too long. It was very much just <laughs> yeah. gets out the car, walks into the building, has a full conversation with the guy behind the counter and checks out, like, six outfits and they show you everything. (laughs) Like, him looking at the six outfits and then he leaves the store. Like, you could have just cut that and made it, like, a two-minute scene. That's called, we have 42 minutes of footage. Fuck. Yeah, exactly. And then the ending is, again, wild with what happens to him and this priest character that's also around. It's definitely worth checking out. Again, like Aaron and I both said, It is not an easy watch. It is very violent towards women, but beyond the sensational transgressiveness of it being like a 1980s slasher movie, there is, uh, I think, a bit under the surface that's definitely warranted for um, discussion. Another funny fact I, I read about this movie, it was originally only given limited release like maybe even regionally and guess where it opened in 1980 uh, i'm gonna say new orleans nope honolulu hawaii oh it was where it opened <laughs> like how the fuck ha- that ha- happened ha- no, whoa whoa what yeah i didn't get a chance to uh look into what led to that i wanted to do that but i didn't get a chance to do it before we uh recorded but i i did yeah, want to like wild. find out like why the fuck did it come to honolulu <laughs> second movie is also a uh, 1980s movie this one's a sci-fi horror movie this is one that i also enjoyed but i definitely would say we're not going to do it on our main show if anything we would do it as a commentary track on our patreon it's a 1983 little known dutch sci-fi horror film the lift deep inside this
2: vertical city a machine has come to life a machine with a terrible secret modern technology gave birth to the lift but the lift has made itself smarter stronger and deadlier (laughs) and now The man responsible for making it safe is trying to make it stop killing. Ah! Take the stairs. Take the stairs. For God's sake, take the stairs. Or De Lift. Uh, yes.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> Directed by Dick Maas or Maas. Dick Maas is how I've always heard it Dick pronounced. Dick Maas, yes. All right, Dick Maas. We'll go with that. Um, I think this is the only and first Dutch movie I've ever seen in my life. After I watched it, Tubi recommended me a couple things. And it immediately recommended me like a Dutch slasher that looked interesting. So like now I'm wondering if there was this whole subgenre of Dutch 1980s horror that I kind of want to look into but yeah it's exactly what you think it is it's literally about an elevator in a one of those fancy high-rise buildings that the 1980s loved exploring with their movies where it starts functioning on its own and killing people and you don't know if it's possessed supernaturally you don't know if it's some weird AI thing that's going on because there's this whole subplot with microchips and computers and this being 1983 the whole subplot is Someday microchips will take over everything. I actually like explores ideas of like what cyberpunk does with transhumanism, implanting ourselves with microchips to like control our blood pressure and stuff like that. It's a wild movie, and the version I watched on Tubi was dubbed, and I'm honestly was 100 okay with that because the English dubbing for this movie is fucking bad, but in the best ways, does not match up the lip sync at all. The people they chose for each character are, at best, okay, and at worst, laughably bad. Oh, yeah. The movie has a weird, strange... I don't know if this is a Dutch kind of style of humor to it, but it has this weird, subtle, black comedy subsurface to this movie that I I really dug.
0: That's very much a Dutch cultural thing think about all the paul verhoeven movies yeah and it's very
1: like it's very mean spirited to women but in that goofy like 80s way of being like mean spirited to women and i guess that's just a universal thing it wasn't just an american 80s comedy thing but then a lot of the women kind of go along with it in a weird way there's so much weirdness around this movie And and like for a movie about like a killer elevator basically It doesn't quite go in the full, like, death spa craziness. No, it it does not. It never goes, like, full paranormal. Yeah, and it actually kind of takes itself seriously throughout it, which didn't entirely not work. It it worked, kind of. I knew what the reveal was going to be, but the way it's revealed, it took it a step further that I wasn't expecting. When he finally finds the thing he's looking for at the end. Okay, so let me blow your mind for a
0: minute. Okay. So first of all, this director, Dick Moss, has another movie that I think you should check out that's a fucking blast called amsterdam
1: So that was the other movie that was recommended to me on Tubi. Okay. Yeah, Amsterdam. So this is
0: about a fucking hard-bit detective guy who is tracking the serial killer throughout the fucking city of Amsterdam, and the serial killer is literally using the fucking canals in Amsterdam like in full scuba gear and popping up and fucking murdering people
1: and going back into the canals. I love that premise. It's so good. That's a Larry Cohen premise.
0: <laughs> yes, it is buck wild. It came out in the late 80s. I want to say like 88, 89. Now here's the even better thing. Dick Moss remade his own fucking movie, The Lift. <laughs> In 2001. What? It has four different titles. So that's kind of the problem of trying to find this one. It's called Down. It's called The Shaft. It's also called The Lift. Again, in some places, just The Lift 2001. Kind of sort of the same premise. It is set in New York this time. The
1: cast is... Naomi Watts? James Marshall?
0: (laughs) James Marshall from Twin Peaks. Michael Ironside? What? (laughs) Dan Hedaya? Ron Perlman? Perlman, From from the movie we're talking about (laughs) right now? How have I never fucking heard of this movie? (laughs) Because this movie... Got fucking buried in direct to video
1: shit. I gotta watch the remake now of his own movie. This one honestly goes in a much more bonkers
0: bananas direction because he's working with with a bigger budget. He's working with more resources. The production design in this movie is Buck Wild. Yeah, this was at a time where like Naomi Watts was a. Known quantity at this point, right? This was like the year before she's in The Ring. This is the same year or like the year after she's in Mulholland Drive. It's wild that Naomi Watts is just in this movie. Now, I might be mistaken on this, but I also think that this was one that might have been filmed three or four years prior and then got released in 2001, just kind of got dumped later. But yeah, the cast in this is bug nuts. And, again, it's Dick Moss, like, remaking his own movie. So, yes, you absolutely should check that out if you have seen the original movie. Because I remember this one being so much more fucking crazy.
1: So, uh, after I watched The Lift again, Tooby immediately recommended to me Amsterdam, and I didn't even check to see he was the same director. Uh I just added it to my list for later. So, I am going to go watch that sooner or later. But, yes, I also want to check out Down or The Shaft. But, going back to The Lift Real Fast... Something again like I do love that trope and it's something we just don't see anymore in movies or at least not that often or in things in general. Stuff in the 80s just loved this idea of fancy towers where like some of the floors are apartments. On the top floor there's a fancy restaurant. Yes. Then it's all like run by some kind of It's a live play work new technology. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Like some kind of new technology operates the building and in in the lift it's this microchipped computer operated system for the the elevator system i
0: can't wait for you to watch poltergeist 3 then
1: yeah like and ever since you mentioned poltergeist 3 that's been like one of those things i've always liked gremlins 2 gremlins 2 like even in video yeah. games whenever it pops up in video games where you have to kind of travel up a tower i think it would work so well with more horror games that they did it like that i just i love that idea and i mean there's a couple scenes where, like, claustrophobia is a real thing. You have claustrophobia. Uh-huh. Being trapped in an elevator is a naturally scary thing to think about. Uh-huh. Not just one that's trying to kill you. Yeah, sounds bad. But, like, yeah, it's surprisingly a reserved movie for it being about a killer elevator. It's not the best movie, but it's also not the worst. I enjoyed watching it. I do think, again, there were some moments where we could move a little quicker here or do a little bit of editing, and that whole fucking scene where they go see the professor and he talks about the theory of microchips was a hilarious, but also some of the things were kind of hauntingly true or at least about to come <laughs> true. But it was interesting because I was like, holy shit, he's just talking about cyberpunk fiction. Uh-huh. But yeah, it's on Tubi. Both, actually, both these movies are on Tubi. Don't Go in the House and The Lift. Um, that's how I watch them. I guess Don't Go in the House, the version on Tubi is the uh, edited American release, but I th- still think it's worth a watch. But if you want to watch something more just digestible, The Lift is definitely good it's not super gory but there is a scene where a guy gets like slowly beheaded by an elevator so there is that yeah (laughs) it's not as gory as it could be but it it still has some couple gnarly deaths but yeah i enjoyed it and i do think we should do it one day as commentary for a patron especially talk about like all the weird dutch humor and all the bad dubbing that's in it
0: hell yeah all right cool well yeah let's go ahead and jump into our movie for this episode which is The Last Winter, directed by Larry Fessenden, co-written by Fessenden and Robert Lever from 2006. This is an eco-horror, winter, isolation, survival, psychological horror movie. So here's a little taste of that for you to enjoy. Turn the AC all the way down, or just, you know, this time of year, open your windows and turn the lights off and just get
2: right in the mood. Empathy with the land. is this learned in childhood. The land has changed. Something up here is off. Where's my welcoming party? It is good to see this team taking shape here. Everybody's gearing up.
1: James Hoffman, meet Ed Pollack.
2: How you doing? How it you come to work for North? You're not the type. We work for the American people. What the American people want is energy independence. Temperature's been all over the place. My only concern is getting my equipment in. Tundra's barely frozen. Maybe you're gonna have to reconsider your plans. That's the wrong answer. There's a fierceness in the wind I've never felt before. Something is being unleashed. What happened out there yesterday? It's coming out from the ground. It's haunted. I want to show you. I'm further out now. Listen, listen. Did you hear what he was saying? Get out of my way! I'm telling you, there's something out there that's trying to drive us out of here. You see it? I need evidence. There's a corpse outside. That's evidence of something. We're not leaving the station. It's not safe. I'm in charge here! Why wouldn't the wilderness fight us like any organism would fend off a virus? Open your eyes!
1: Alright, so, Aaron, right up top, this was a mixed bag for me. Do I think it's worth a watch? Absolutely. I do recommend people watch it. This might be my least favorite watch, though, since Mothman Prophecies, like, way back when we first started. I do think this is a better movie than Mothman Prophecies. But there was just something about this movie, the way it was paced, the way it was presented certain things that didn't sit with me well. What I did love about it was all of the shots of the actual like Alaska tundra, flatlands, nothingness of white. That's the thing that this movie does amazing is it really visually shows it's you... It's gorgeous. It visually yeah. shows you how untouched and deadly this land that they're in is. The actual movie making is gorgeous, but even the land itself, It Out being in the wilderness of Alaska, you're thinking like, oh, beautiful mountains, snow-filled wooded areas, and where it took place, they do a great job. The wilderness isn't isn't even really beautiful to look at. It's either like white nothingness to the point where you think it's almost like a green screen, but it's not. It's literally just flat white everywhere, and that's it. Or it's just barren like a desert, but if the winter version of a desert, just absolute, just it's not even pretty to look at the sense of you are truly isolated and the characters kind of beat this over your head a little bit in the dialogue, but it really does feel like you're on another planet. at so many parts of this movie, especially when people are outside. The characters themselves are talking about how like this is the last part of civilization that man hasn't touched. And can we even tame it? Will it let us tame it? And all that was amazing. I love the first half of this movie. I think the setup and all of the different quirks and relationships between all the people who are out here in the middle of fucking nowhere every little thing and every little quirk causing huge mental ramifications i think all that works in the same way that it works in the thing because i thought about the thing a little bit while watching this what doesn't work for me is when they actually reveal the thing that's happening they reveal way too much of it and the ending is very like showy but not explain and you and i've talked about less is more and like movies don't have to beat you over the head with explaining things but this movie is actually one of those rare examples where i'm like they needed to explain some more shit what the fuck is actually happening and what am i looking at the very end of it felt just like trying to do a shamala twist but it wasn't really like one that was earned or even made much sense to me where it worked was when they kept the horror subdued and almost off screen a little bit And you could only hear noises and only see people's reactions to it. The whole visual with the dead body with its eyes pecked out of its head, just in the snow next to that box that signifies where they originally drilled was amazing. But again, I think they should have went more into like, what the fuck happened to that first drilling expedition? What's under that box thing? I'm okay with a movie with red herrings in it. That's fine but a red herring also needs to be explained and not just something that's so focused on throughout the movie. And then just this new thing pops out and that is just completely forgotten about, not even tied to whatever is going on. I don't know, and just some of the last 20 minutes or so of the movie didn't make sense. What happened between Ron Perlman's character and the main character was getting to be interesting and this weird push-pull and earning each other's respect, but then that all kind of gets thrown to the wayside I was actually okay with all of the... This movie is not hiding what it's about. It's very much a critique on how we treat the environment, global warming, and the idea that nature isn't fighting back against us necessarily, but is reacting to what we're doing to the planet and the way it reacts is very aggressively. And I mean, it even shows you like parts of me where it started becoming like an inconvenient truth. All right, well, this character has this dialogue. We're going to show you a slideshow of all these disasters that are happening around the world that are man-made disasters. I like that. I like that, that something too. something
0: that Fezenden does stylistically in a lot of his movies where he does montage and he incorporates weird animation and stuff like that. I really enjoy those elements of him taking different mediums and kind of smashing them together to kind of have this effect that really worked and still worked well for me in this movie cutting to like actual news footage documentary footage of we're not just making this shit up here's the real impact of all the shit that we're talking about for you the audience to look at here it is the real shit
1: yeah and funny enough i was about to say like i actually liked that too that part of it worked for me even though I just wanted to let our listeners know, like, that's going to be in the movie. Like, there's these parts where preachy is not the right word, because I think this is something that is important, and I think the Uh, movie... As much as you and I are on the same wavelength
0: with what he's saying with this movie, I mean, it's a little bit preachy, but this is the kind of thing that deserves to be preached about, right? His whole point with the movie is, you know, regardless of political shit that's going on or whatever, wars, other disasters, that shit comes and goes. And there's always loss, and that makes an impact on us. But if we fuck up the planet, that's it. There's no coming back from that. We're all fucked. There's no turning point back from that type of, you know, sea change happening. So we have to take it seriously.
1: Despite all the isolation and everything else that this movie is exploring horror-wise, the biggest horror is that. That all works. The stuff that didn't work for me, it was actually the horror itself by the end. The horror was working for me like when the initial supernatural shit is happening or at least you don't really know what's going on where like a couple characters here and there are slowly going insane. When that one scientist discovers the writing about the last winter, that all worked really well. And then when they have the dead body and a character starts hallucinating and seeing is the dead body moving around, I don't know. The imagery with the ravens is really interesting. Like all of that was so good. But then once they actually just show you too much, it turned into almost a sci fi TV original movie for me. And that's what did not work for me.
0: That's an interesting conversation I think we can have because Fezenden has explicitly said no, none of that was meant to be taken literally. Interesting. This is all stuff that they are all hallucinating, you know, that's kind of coming for them. It's all stuff that's in their minds. It's not meant to be taken literally. This is how I chose to kind of manifest and personify these greater visions, and he talks from the beginning about the entire story being inspired by, and I have more specific details in this that I'll get to in a minute, but just the idea that what you believe and what your worldview is fundamentally alters how you are then therefore experiencing life and the things going on around you. So kind of what you take with you is what you're going to get out of your personal experience throughout life. And so he was just saying that like a lot of what they're seeing is only in their heads. It's not meant to be taken literally now. You know, I think it works. I agree with you like 70% because it's not a hundred percent clear. Is this happening? Is this not happening? And it's not the type of ambiguity that, You can wipe away easily, or ambiguity that, in the end, doesn't really matter, right? The end of fucking Inception does the top fall bullshit. That's the kind of ambiguity that doesn't matter. Who gives a fuck? Regardless of how that turns out, that doesn't affect the movie that you just spent two hours watching. But then there's stuff like, this is a totally wild thing, but Menace to Society... You know, you can look at that movie and be like, oh shit, is what's his face even there the entire movie? Like, nobody ever interacts with him? Is he fully just a figment in the main character's imagination? That kind of ambiguity makes you totally reassess the whole movie.
1: Yeah, so I I am almost reassessing it a little bit in active time as we're recording this since you said that that's what Larry Fazzan and. But I just wish the movie put a little more effort into like... yes. Making it, making it ambiguous.
0: Making it maybe more ambiguous or less ambiguous.
1: Because the last 20 minutes really feels like though they've established this a supernatural bullshit happening. There's like a couple throwaway lines from the scientist characters and the main character who is one of the scientists anyway that like, oh, we might have tapped into the gas that's underneath the earth and we're hallucinating all this. So Larry Pheasant is saying that no, that is what happened, but the movie doesn't tell you that all right, but I think the movie needed to at least bring that more into question because the very last moments of this movie feel like no this is supernatural nonsense happening of nature fighting back sure yeah and where i ultimately fall
0: on it personally is it doesn't matter to me because we're kind of already told from the beginning like there's countless things that could be going on that we just fundamentally don't understand because we just don't know enough about how the fucking earth works we don't know enough about this science we don't know enough about this phenomena we don't understand global warming we can't predict what's going to happen because this has never been recorded before this is all shit that we're figuring out in real time And
1: unfortunately a lot of people in power still don't think it's real or at least They know it's real, but they want to pretend like it isn't because they're making money off of the oil companies.
0: Or they just don't care because it's not going to affect them because they're going to be dead in fucking 150 years, right?
1: It's like that Simpsons meme, up yours, children.
0: Basically. I mean, we joke about it all the time because we lived down south. You're from New Orleans specifically. Like Your sister-in-law is in Florida We joke all the time, but the fucking Gulf Coast in Florida, like a lot of fucking South Louisiana is going to be under fucking water in the next 50
1: years because of climate change. That's the wild shit to me is those are the places that are going to go first. And those are the places full of so many of the people who believe it isn't real as it's actively happening to them.
0: Also, in the context of this movie, there's a lot of fucking oil that goes on in that neck of the woods. A lot of oil work lot of, fuck it, let's get it while the getting's good, get this shit out of the ground, drill baby drill, and then like, oops, we can't fucking drink any of the water down here because it's all fucking poisoned. Yeah.
1: Going back to that, I agree with you with the concept and the idea, the core of this movie. I agree with you that I don't care. I don't think it matters. But the way the movie presents it is annoying to me. Well, if you're going to go this far and do it in this way, you do have to like show me a little bit. Yeah,
0: that's the like mark you can put against the movie, and I think ultimately it doesn't bother me as much as it does you because I don't think the movie, and from everything that I've read so far with Fezenden and heard from him in interviews and shit, he wasn't interested in that either. It's iconography that he's fascinated with. I guess let's go ahead and say it here, we're over a fucking hour into this episode and this movie's
1: 16 years old by the way horror newbies there are very creepy moments the feelings of isolation out in the wilderness and everything in winter wilderness is definitely there there's a couple jump scares with like a dead body and things like that but it's a very digestible horror movie so i do think you could watch it and again despite me kind of poo-pooing it i do think it's worth a watch absolutely worth a watch especially in the context of what you just mentioned aaron that's what he was going for can i just wish that the ghost creatures, or the, sure. in quotes, okay, so, ghost
0: creatures looked better. <laughs> like so this. that's what I was about to get to. Was he is using the Wendigo iconography that he seems to be fucking obsessed with because his movie before this was literally called
1: Wendigo. Wendigo, <laughs> yeah, from two thousand and one,
0: and it's a horror movie, but it is very much like indie horror, adjacent, definitely more of a psychological family drama kind of thing and then Wendigo lore and iconography comes back up and is a major focus of the video game that he wrote with Graham Resnick until dawn. Yep. (laughs) Albeit, it is not used in quite the same way, so like, I'm not necessarily spoiling anything there. Pretty much right away in that game, that is kind of already hinted at so it's not like i'm blowing anything for you there but even
1: in this movie he's very loose with the windigo lore because it's a completely different thing in this movie than it was from sure. until dawn and then from actual Wendigo lore when that one character was giving the lore of the windigo earlier in the movie i was just like i'm half expecting hulk whatever it is where wolverine's first appearance where the hulk Wolverine and the Wendigo have a triple threat match <laughs> like in, fight, yeah. in the Canadian wilderness. <laughs> so ultimately
0: where I'm going with all this is I think he is using iconography that he is fascinated and intrigued with and that has clearly stuck in his head. He's using that as kind of the mechanism to like put a linchpin on looking at how people with differing viewpoints can clash and interact and sometimes find common ground, especially sure. when like, survival is at hand. To me, I don't get as hung up on that part of the movie, because to me, this movie is so much more about the fucking real-life horror of having to find common ground enough with somebody that you fundamentally do not have any common ground with, whether that's philosophically morally religiously whatever like somebody who is just their entire life is in stark contrast to you and what you believe when you're in the type of situation where survival is key where and how and how far do you overcome some of those things to find common ground in order to survive right. The movie's way more focused on that.
1: That's really hammered in on the relationship between the characters, Ed and James, who are the two leads, like Ron Perlman's character and then James LaGrosse's character, who's also named James. That is a very high point and something that kept me watching this movie, despite me having hangups on it, was really their relationship and Ron Perlman's performance specifically. Oh, yeah. James LeGros and like Ron Perlman
0: are both excellent fucking actors, and to see them kind of sparring philosophically dramatically like it's very very fucking engaging
1: so was connie Britton as yeah. the the love interest between the two of them and this weird love triangle subplot in the movie that sure yeah. her performance is also good
0: and connie Britton is super interesting in this movie because she is the embodiment of i fundamentally know what we're doing is fucked but I got to get mine. There's more shit going on. I have a fucking mortgage.
1: Yeah, whereas Ed is like... I don't give a shit. Ed is like, I'm convinced this is our God-given right and as an American people that we should drill and get oil. Yeah. James is the person who's like, we need to protect the planet. And you're right, her character, Abby, is very much in the middle. And weirdly enough... I think her character is what majority of Americans feel. Yes. Unfortunately. Yes. And I think that's what the movie is trying to critique there too.
0: Yes. Which is why I think it's interesting that she's the one who, I guess, you know, spoiler alert, survives at the end of this whole thing because she has kind of taken the stance of, okay, well, I know that all this is bad.
1: Or did she survive?
0: Damaging the environment.
1: Or is that final scene a final hallucination before she bites it. Sure, well,
0: regardless (laughs) of your reading of that, even, I think it's interesting just from the standpoint of her taking the middle ground view the entire time of, okay, I know it's fucking bad, I know this is damaging the environment, I know that we're doing wrong, I know this company's doing fucked up shit, but I gotta put gas in my car to go to my job so that I can feed my family. Like, she very much still has that attitude that most Americans have, where like, My options are either stick to my fucking beliefs and my morals and, like, uncertainty, right? I won't be able to feed my family. I won't be able to live in this fucking capitalist hellscape because I'm not engaging with that system. I'm not choosing to be a cog in that system. I'm not choosing to, like, be complicit in how we are destroying ourselves and society and the environment because we're just, as a whole culture, chasing profit. I can't make those sacrifices because it means my fucking family does not get to eat if I am not participating in this, right? I mean, again, we're both from the fucking South. Mm -hmm. We know people like fucking ron perlman we have met yeah. many guys oh, yeah. that are like ron perlman especially like in my last job i met a lot of people like that especially down in that area where there's a lot of oil there's a lot of natural gas just a lot of no this is our fucking job i'm gonna do this why shouldn't we take this resource i don't give
1: a fuck i have three kids at home uh-huh. yeah, yeah yeah
0: i have kids to put through fucking school don't tell me that the job that I'm doing that's paying for all that is bad somehow, fuck you,
1: you know? And, and like, the big Catch-22 and fucked-up thing is, like, well, what kind of future are your kids gonna inherit now?
0: Uh-huh. Ex- sure. That's right? something
1: I'm always dealing with now that I have kids, is, on one hand, my goal is their safety and their well-being, but at what cost to the, everything else, and at what cost to, like, the planet they're gonna inherit, and etc. So, I do like that the movie challenges me and challenges me the viewer on those moments and her character also is very reminiscent of you know the song vicarious by tool it's very much just sure. that because like that's what that song is all about It is silly like now that we're actually contextualizing it and talking there it is silly for me to be so critique heavy on just the simple fact that I think either too much was revealed or what was revealed was silly looking and might have been the fact that this was a low budget movie and it was in 2006 wasn't done practically and the digital effects looked like a PS2 FMV cutscene or the creatures did rather. So then
0: part of your hang up here then your biggest part of this hang up is that you didn't necessarily like the execution yeah. of how it was done, not as much that it went to that degree and not more, not less. Or is it both?
1: Well, it's a little bit of both because if that was what he was going for, it was like, no, they were all actually hallucinating this because their own greed did crack open the gas and made them hallucinate, and then they all went crazy. I mean, that that is what
0: he has said. I've read literal interviews with him where he was like, Everything was supposed to be subjective in the end. None of that was supposed to be literal. But
1: I push back on that because then why have that scene with Abby at, at all, the very end sure. at all? Or like do a different thing with her. Like Maybe have that scene, but then have her come to the realization or like go back to like where she was trapped and you show her body or something. I don't know. I did not like that the movie was trying to do that, what Pheasant was wanting because I like that contextualization. I like that the stupid mundane thing that we all thought it was, that you, you're expecting in a horror movie like this, the scientist says, oh, it's gas, or we're hallucinating, and you just dismiss as like, no, we all already know it's something supernatural. So like, that's yeah. going to like be a surprise, of course, to the scientist. But then I do love that. No, it actually turns out in the end, that was what it was. It was something stupid and mundane, and everything you're seeing is what you kind of subconsciously wanted it to be, was these murderous <laughs> ghost creatures that are like the ghosts of the fossils in the oil question mark wendigo i love <laughs> which i love that concept i love that idea <laughs> yeah like, i do too i love
0: that weird there is so much cosmic horror that's already in this movie and i think that's totally
1: why it works so well for me that part does work that aspect of it even the Mitchell visualizations of the hoofs and like the herd running by all of that was fine. I loved that visual. You just didn't like literally being shown yeah, what the thing looks the like. The
0: creature by the end, sure. But
1: then also showing you like what's happening to Ron Perlman and then also showing what happens to Abby because there's no indication in those scenes that this is all in their heads like at all. It'd be one thing if there was more planted through the movie to make you question the reality, but the movie sure. doesn't even do that. The movie really just visually... And the way it portrays these scenes and the storytelling, I just went with, oh, no, they actually triggered an apocalypse with the Wendigo ghost. Yeah, that's what actually happened. I didn't realize it was all contextualized until you told me. Again, that's
0: fair criticism, because I I will agree for as much as Pheasant in in interviews has been like, no, that's all supposed to be subjective. It's not supposed to be literal. There's still parts of it where it's like, but then how did Ron Perlman die? Then How did James LaGroix die? Exactly. what happened there right so like i'll agree with that criticism for sure that maybe needed to be a little more resolved one way or another now i personally kind of fucking dig the like execution of let's show you these weird spectral creatures because if i am correct if i remember correctly None of that is CGI. It's all like stop motion animation. It just looked bad. It's weird. And I will yeah. agree with you. And frankly, he does the same thing in Wendigo, where the two or three times that you see a like antlered deer bone demon creature thing, it is this really fucking weird stop motion. You mentioned Tool a second ago. It's very much like early Tool video phil Tippett's mad god kind of creepy janky weird animation stuff but he's also doing it in dreams and montage in a way where it's more esoteric and in here it is more just nope that's like a glowing blue ghost thing
1: yeah it really does look like ps2 graphics when chosen it's
0: portrayed a little more literally instead of being this kind of figurative thing which
1: Yes, again, like, going back to the
0: criticism of were we supposed to take any of this seriously, like, okay, yeah, we can be critical of Fezzet and on that, that, like, maybe this execution needed to be figured out a little bit further.
1: And for me to be a little bit petty, too, I think I would enjoy this movie 50% more if it stayed exactly the same way it was, but the creatures actually looked menacing or scary or not like PS2 graphics. Like, if they actually looked good, then I would enjoy this movie so much more, I think. Or if you had to keep the crappy looking creatures again, sprinkled more throughout the movie to like question the reality of what was going on. Kind of go into like that whole dreamlike sequence of events with James's death until like Ed's death. When James gets taken away by that like giant ghost moose thing that I guess is the wendigo, it's almost like a spirit is going across the wilderness of Alaska. Mm-hmm. And then it's almost like a near death experience. He's reliving this childhood moment. Where he is a toddler is like running through the snow back up to like his house and his yeah. mom is I in love the doorway. That, that I was love all that great. Like I love that
0: depiction of what's going on and how that works and everything. Like it again, just it's much more cosmic horror.
1: Yeah, those are my my two main criticisms. Otherwise, I really enjoy what this movie's doing. It's a visual feast of the actual area they're shooting in and where it takes place. Oh, yeah, it really does a phenomenal job of setting all that up.
0: Like I said a second ago, the fact that they're actually shooting on a real location yeah, that's actually fucking cold and snowy and a pain in the ass. This whole cast looks fucking miserable.
1: Wasn't it like near a bay in like northern Alaska, like top of the state? Uh,
0: Not necessarily. I'll tell you about that more in a second. I, w- I was
1: reading they did a research trip to that area.
0: Initially, yes, but they didn't end up shooting
1: there okay.
0: per se, but just the fact that they shot on a location like this makes all the difference in the world. Oh, it
1: does. It's amazing.
0: You know, in these kinds of harsh environments, I have so much more appreciation for movies like this now because this just doesn't fucking, they don't do this anymore, right? It feels
1: legitimately dangerous, not just in the movie, but you can feel that this production, actually, there was a danger to it where they were. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, you appreciate that John Carpenter filmed The Thing in the snow, for real.
1: It's what makes
0: the original Star Wars movies feel so much more tangible. No matter how many sets and special effects and miniatures are layered on top, they went to fucking Norway to film Hoth, right? They went to Tunisia to film Tatooine. They're on real locations. It's not fucking Red Notice on Netflix where The Rock and Gal Gadot and Ryan Reynolds are just against fucking green screen the entire time when it's supposed to be fucking Rome. There's just a totally different level of filmmaking involved with doing this stuff practically that I really have so much respect for, especially when your budget is as low as this movie, right? Really fucking commendable. And it's also commendable. Like again, the whole crew, the whole cast, everybody was game to actually make this fucking happen and truck through this entire experience together.
1: Those shots where like one of them is going to like that other tent site where he like writes observations or going by the box in the snow where the original drill site was, which again kind of wish the movie explored more of that. Cause you could say like, Oh, that original drill that's hinted at throughout this movie is what released the gas in the area, whatever. Yeah. I think that's, always
0: kind of meant to just be this red herring of like it's nothing it's exactly what they told you it is it's just the fucking shutoff valve from the original rig yeah. but because there is so much fucking weird paranoid underhanded secrecy about how the oil company operates and everything like you would begin to wonder like okay no but what really is there is that what we were being told is that all yeah. lies is that a cover and you're never quite sure, It's great
1: imagery, though, because in those shots specifically, going back to my original point, there's just so much whiteness that almost hurts to look at the screen, and all you see is white, to the point where I was like, is this scene in a green screen? And it wasn't. It was like, no, that's what the wilderness actually looks like when you are Uh in a flat white, where it basically looks like a purgatory, and the sun is out, but it's so cold that the ice doesn't melt and you have the sunlight reflecting off the white surface snow like it's just this almost unnerving blasted out whiteness to it and uh-huh. then you have that imagery of the box and then later on when they find the first guy who went insane his naked dead body just in the snow next to the box all of that works so well as far as like horror imagery yeah
0: totally i love the music
1: yeah music's great
0: movie the score is great i appreciate the fact that you know we we talk about this every once in a while that oh this movie's maybe a little too on the nose with its messaging or like it's you know a little bit too blunt or movie doesn't fucking get to what it's actually trying to say i wish it was just more explicit kind of appreciate the fact that pheasant was like you you know it's important to me fucking environmental shit i'm gonna make a movie about it and i'm just gonna be straight up about that's what this movie's dealing with let's talk about it. let's have a conversation about it and this is shit that is happening and it's important and like Yes, I'm just totally going to fucking load it into this horror movie for you.
1: It is on the nose. Again, it it does beat you over the head a little bit over it. But again, like you, I actually think it works well.
0: Well, it's also one of those things, too, that no matter how fucking political climate change is made into, I guess there's nothing political about it. No, It affects everybody equally. It's happening. (laughs) It's happening. We have decades and decades of data that's showing this shit's happening and our science is getting better, the tools that we're using are getting better, and that's only making the evidence more and more clear and terrifying that this is actually shit that's happening. We can't fucking turn back from it. We can only lessen it at this point. Like, fundamentally we're past the point of reversing any of this that period like i said fucking south louisiana is going to be underwater in 50 years as of right now there are literally insurance companies that are fucking pulling out of south louisiana wholesale because Uh all the property along the coast is uninsurable you know from flooding and from hurricanes and everything else all of which is being worsened by climate change we have enough data at this point to know for sure it is human-driven. This is not just some natural fucking cycle the Earth goes through, right? The last 10 years have been the hottest recorded years in the history of humankind being able to measure this shit, and literally each year is hotter than the last year. That's fucking bug nuts. So like, we can see this is happening. It's not going anywhere. There's nothing political about that. That is just fact the fact that people make it political in order to further their agendas is what's aggravating. Yeah. Because on one hand, yeah, I don't fucking agree with the oil companies and the natural gas companies and, you know, all types of other massive manufacturing and fucking Amazon and carbon output and fuck Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and their jets, right? That whole entire idea of we have to do this in order for society to continue like no you don't an aggravating ad that i hear in the middle of certain podcasts that i listen to is bp really cares about the earth that's why we're electrifying all of our wells at this particular site by the end of this year we're doing our part and it's like yo this is a field of like 60 fucking rigs. <laughs> so you're going to electrify 60 fucking rigs because you're saving the planet in air quotes. Okay, sure. No, you're electrifying 60 rigs because it's so much more cost effective for you as a company to do that now because that technology has gotten so much more affordable. You're doing it for your bottom line, not because you give a shit about the planet. Don't fucking lie to me. Also, what impact are you really making when you're just doing it at this one site for just this one portion of your rigs? Fuck off. You're not fundamentally changing the entire infrastructure of your company. You ruined the Gulf of Mexico. Multiple times. for Decades <laughs> multiple to come.
1: Times, yeah.
0: Possibly forever. Yeah. So we have that whole end of the spectrum. Well,
1: you, you have the true believers, though, too. Like Ed's character in this, that's what's aggravating. He legitimately oh, thinks yeah, yeah, deep yeah. down he knows
0: it's bullshit. But the far psycho version of manifest destiny. God this is God's us, yeah. dominion over the earth and all of its creatures. Yeah, I'll do whatever the fuck I want. Right. Yeah. yeah that whole side of it's aggravating. That whole end of the spectrum aggravating.
1: And then, You know what the weird thing on top of all that is too like with him is I don't know if we were going to touch on this, but now I'm thinking about it. This movie also has like a little bit to say about masculinity between Ed and Oh sure, the son of the owner of the company the CEO of the company's son the CEO saying like you need to be a man go work out in the field Uncle Ed's gonna take care of you and there's that whole you have to impress Uncle Ed and be hardworking and do your fair share Uh, toxic masculinity on top of all of that
0: well then the dynamic between him and James too look at this environmentalist pussy yeah (laughs) they talk about the shit that that character did like dude spent how many years in the field dude has been to all these crazy extreme places around the world fighting for fucking climate
1: preservation he's a survivalist and he rescues ed sorry ass when he yeah. falls in the the water
0: yes this pussy boy environmentalist spent fucking years in the fucking middle east in the desert dealing with the oil crisis there after the gulf war like Cool, yeah, he's totally just a fucking pussy boy, and you, Ron Perlman, are like such a big fucking man. Uh huh. You flew in on your helicopter and dropped right at the site. Uh huh.
1: He's what the the main character in Pizza Bear (laughs) should have been like. I feel like.
0: So yeah, like there is that whole aspect of this movie as well. But kind of back to what I was getting. As far as environmental shit, what's aggravating is you have the two extremes where you have the full blown capitalism true believer side of the spectrum. Then you also have super do-gooder, in theory, celebrity, save-the-planet kind of bullshitters. And what's aggravating to me is largely they understand that the impact is not with us. It's not with you. It's not with me. It's not with literally 90% of the planet. It is with a very small sliver of the most elite who are using their money to make their lives more convenient. They fucking fly their private jets everywhere. It's like
1: that one thing, like if you removed one Fortune 500 CEO, it would do more for the planet than all of us recycling for the next 70 years or some bullshit like that. Basically, yes.
0: (laughs) And this comes up in the fucking movie too. Like Me making sure that I have adequate air in my tires and then not using my AC as much, me making those sacrifices and cuts and inconvenient things in my life, doesn't make a fucking drop iota of difference when Elon Musk flies his fucking stupid jet from one end of the country to the other one time and emits more fucking carbon output than I will in my entire life. Fuck off. Don't tell me to use a shitty paper straw that falls apart because, again, Jeff Bezos is flying dick-shaped rockets into space for no reason.
1: (laughs) Fuck off. Uh, I forgot about the dick shape. (laughs) You know, I
0: will still do my part. Absolutely. And, you know, there are things that I am aware of that need to be lobbied with our Congress people, and there's things that we need to be aware of as far as, you know, major climate impact is concerned that Congress is paying attention to, and we need to be voting and doing our part, and we need to be supporting causes through either what little excess money we might have or time volunteering or whatever. Like, you know, we need to be doing our best to educate the people around us about here's basic things we could be doing differently. And you know what? I fucking appreciate Larry Fessenden because for everything that I've ever heard, he seems to fucking really like walk that walk. Dude published a book in 1992 called Low Impact Filmmaking. And the book specifically is about Here's shit we need to do to reduce human impact on the environment when we're making fucking movies. Movie making is such a fucking wasteful, fundamentally, just it is. So we need to do what we can to reduce that impact, which means, you know, if you're printing a script, print on both sides of the fucking paper and use half as much paper. For things where you didn't print on both sides, reuse that fucking paper, run it back through the copier again. It's fine. No fucking plastic bottles for water. You're going to get your own fucking canteen at the beginning of the production, and you're going to go over there and refill it at the fucking jug. We're going to source all the wood for our sets from secondhand use, and then we're going to, like, recycle all that wood again. He has a literal fucking manual that he wrote 30 years ago about how to make your filmmaking more environmentally friendly. Interesting. Dude seems to legitimately walk the walk when it comes to this kind of shit which I appreciate so infinitely much more than fucking Leonardo DiCaprio telling me I need to like switch over to fucking solar panels on my house that i can't afford and also like i'm not buying a fucking house anymore it's just not even my decision to make because we live in this fucking hellscape where like people our age can't afford to buy houses like fuck off
1: (laughs) or jared leto method acting sure right (laughs) gotta take every opportunity to shit on that
0: (laughs) I'm, i'm getting really fucking tired of hearing from millionaire celebrities like how we need to be you know making changes to the
1: you gotta pitch in and do
0: your part yeah pitch in like fuck off my guy like you know what take the fucking bus walk a couple of blocks in hollywood to the bus stop take the fucking bus to the studio there chip in right motherfucker like do your part i don't know like that's the other kind of extreme that i think is interesting that this movie is kind of playing around with and comments on here and there Because as much as the Ron Perlman character, like, is this self-righteous asshole, there are kind of those occasional snide remarks that he makes about the James LeGrow character and kind of that viewpoint where, like, oh, you know what? He kind of has a point about some of the weird hypocrisy or, like, short-sighted bullshit on that side of the spectrum, too. Yeah, You know, like, as much as I in the past on our show have talked about I hate the both-sides-ism about shit in general— You know, this is one of those things where, like, because climate change is fundamentally fucking everybody, you know, we have to all be on the same page about this shit. And, you know, largely I fall on the left side of that spectrum when it comes to my, like, thoughts on environmentalism. But there are those times where it's like, this is not making an impact at all. Changing all these specific nitpicky things does not make a fucking iota of difference. What we actually should do is ground this motherfucker's jet and make him take the bus and that will have more impact than like anything we could ever do with the rest of our lives. Yeah. I think so much of it is just we have to fucking agree on who is actually perpetrating 99% of the impact and <laughs> Billionaires. like we as a society <laughs> have to fucking stop that. However we do that, whether that is through voting or whether that is through more extreme measures uh I mean, just say, like, one of the best movies of the past couple of years is How to Blow Up a Pipeline, right? There's some interesting shit in that movie. You know, I'm not necessarily advocating for, like, environmental terrorism, but if you gotta go fucking protest to stop a pipeline from being built through Alaskan wilderness, maybe that's worth doing, you know? Maybe that's worth taking time out of your day Oh God, to go we're gonna get hold the fucking now. sign and write your congressman and volunteer your time, right? I don't know. It's one of those things where I appreciate that this movie is trying to do more through the medium of horror. We have always said, like, horror is a political genre. It always has been. I think this is a great case for that, that this movie has a lot on its mind. There's a lot to talk about in that, you know, entire standpoint. And it's doing it through this genre that largely has been shit on and overlooked and not taken seriously since ever. Yeah. Right? You know? So, like, this is a perfect example of you can do more with the medium than just fucking run around in the woods and murder women.
1: And just like any genre, there's the ones that work and the ones that don't. You, for every last winter in The Bay, which was another big environmental horror movie we did, again, do you have a, what is it, Legacy is the Pizza Bear movie? Prophecy. Prophecy, yes, yeah. Yeah. Where he literally punches a kid and the kid Explodes in his sleeping bag. Love it. Fucking love it. Hey, it's technically environmental horror. Yeah. So. All right.
0: So, real quick, let's kind of talk about the production of this a little
1: bit. Yeah. I, I'm very fascinated. Honestly, I, have we done anything by Larry Pheasant or anything he's been in? Because I think this is our first Larry Pheasant in anything, too.
0: So, we have not done any of the movies that he has written or directed, but he is one of the stars of We Are Still Here, yes. which we talked about yeah. very early in the show. Again, I know I have talked about Until Dawn a couple of times at this
1: point. Lol, it just hit me that We Are Still Here is also a very winter-themed horror movie.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. So, Fezzenden, ever since he was a kid, has always been fucking fascinated with movies. It was just always the thing he wanted to do. He got involved with theater and photography, and he's just kind of always been this visual artist, right? He founded Glass Eye Picks. In 1985, which is his production company. Oh
1: shit, he's been in the game for a while then. He's not incredibly
0: prolific. And part of that is just he is working on his own terms. He's working when and where he can. He also just has a ton of other side shit. Dude's literally in a fucking rock band as well that has put out multiple albums. He's fucking writing video games. He has a lot of other irons in the fire, right? And I'll get to this more in a second, but like he has also been a mentor to a lot of other people. So anyway, he really broke out in the mid-90s with Habit, which was a feature version of a short film that he did a few years prior, which is a very cool New York scummy vampire-esque movie. It's very much a alcoholism allegory it's very much a fucked up relationship allegory but it's all kind of centered around the maybe idea about vampirism right that's what's fun about his horror movies i think is he either goes very fantastical or it stays pretty ambiguous anyway habit was a big indie deal in the mid 90s and that got him on a lot of people's radar he then makes wendigo in 2001 which talked about a second ago that's got jake weber and the like youngest son from malcolm in the middle in it (laughs) weird he does the last winter he did an episode of fear itself which was the like evolution of masters of horror which we talked about on our first masters of Horror patreon episode go check that out join the patreon
1: patreon.com slash watch if you dare five bucks a month
0: yeah he directed an episode called "Skin and Bones" that I still want to go check out of that show. He did his riff on Jaws called "Beneath," that's about a group of teens in the middle of a lake being terrorized essentially by like a killer bass
1: fish. Oh my god, really? Is it good? It's pretty fucking
0: good, and there's like some good practical effects in
1: it. Uh, it's well, good. adding another movie to my uh my list. He did
0: a <laughs> Frankenstein riff several years back that I talked about in recommendations called Depraved that I thought was pretty cool. And he has a new one out this year. That's about werewolves. What? Called Blackout that debuted at Fantasia Fest this summer, uh, which I'm kind of dying to see. So I hope it gets some distribution. So like he has done some pretty interesting shit. He has always liked horror. He especially likes the old universal horror stuff. I love that he has, one of the few really truly, truly independent directors has his own production company, does everything himself. Good like, for him. And he has kind of still stayed in the realm of horror, but has been able to explore a lot of other stuff that he's interested
1: in. Yeah. Cause I peeped over like his IMDb and his Wikipedia and all that. And you're right. He's all over the place. He writes, he produces, he directs. He really just kind of seems like he's doing whatever he wants. And that's really cool. Yeah.
0: And like I mentioned a second ago, he has made a pretty stark point to take young filmmakers under his wing and kind of teach them and mentor them and then kind of support them into their careers. He brings these people on to work on other Glass Eye Productions, puts them through a couple of different tours of production with different jobs in each one so they can get like a well-rounded, hands-on, learn-a-little-bit-of-everything-on-the-set kind of education but then he kind of always pays that back by them producing features for these people. So like Kelly Reichard, not at all fucking horror related, right? But she worked with him on some of his glass Eye Pick stuff. And then he turns around and produces River of Grass, Wendy and Lucy, Certain Women that came out just a couple of years ago. That's really good. Ty West, he produced The Roost and House of the Devil and The Innkeepers. Jim Mickle that did Stakeland, Mickey Keating that did Darling. He produced all this stuff for them to support them after they like came up under him, right? But like you said, he also acts. And I love too, he's just constantly in these weird little bit parts, but he's in fucking Scorsese's Bringing Out the Dead and was just recently in Killers of the Flower Moon, like that was uh, the most recent thing he was in. Love Papa
1: it. Scorsese, mamma yeah.
0: mia. <laughs> he's in Session 9 uh-huh. that we talked about earlier. Hey, fuck you. He's in Jim Jarmusch's Broken Flowers. He's in Adam Wingard's You're Next, which we're definitely going to cover eventually. He's in a super fun movie called Hellbenders. He's in Late Phases. He's in Jug Face, which our buddy Nathan fucking worked on. I wanted to call him and like just pick his brain from minute and just see, like, yo, did you spend any time with Larry Fessman? Did you interact with him at all? seems like probably did because they shot literally in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee, where like nobody had cell phone signal. And I just remember him being like completely out of contact and kind of miserable for like a week at a
1: time before he had a break, you know, and could talk to any of us again. Is Jugface any good, by the way? That's another one that's popped up on my radar. The
0: Great premise. Great premise. I don't think all of it works. But I love the cast. The premise is really great. Kind of
1: like this movie for me, then. <laughs> okay. Check it out. Check it <laughs> yeah.
0: out. That, I mean, just for the fact that literally one of our very good friends that we went to college with and hung out with, lived with, etc., like, he worked on it. Right? Yeah. So check it out at least for that. Like I mentioned a second ago, he's in We Are Still Here. He's in A Valley of Violence. Jacob's Wife. Dude gets around as far as acting, and I always appreciate when he shows up because he really does bring some, like, Fucking weird, yeah. Jack Nicholson energy, like he has that crazy Jack Nicholson look in most of these movies. I really do like the energy that he constantly brings to stuff because he has that weird, edgy uncle energy.
1: If I remember correctly, and we are still here, he's the friend who comes to the house and like him and his wife are like, let's do a seance, yeah. And then he gets a shit wrecked by the main ghost. Yeah, yeah it's good shit. <laughs> in
0: 2010, he published a fucking. 47 episode podcast series, like a narrative horror storytelling series called Tales from Beyond the Pale that he wrote and produced with Glenn McQuaid.
1: Jesus. So he's done every bit of media except maybe uh-huh. write a novel? No, he wrote a novel too. Oh, he
0: did? Okay. <laughs> yeah. He wrote a novel that is tied into all of his Wendigo fascination. Dude has gotten around. Dude has been involved with a lot of stuff. So I appreciate the fact that, you know, he just has. Such a passion for like creating things, like anything, everything. He's just that kind of person. So, anyway, this movie was kind of born out of oh shit, 9 11. Originally, this story began as kind of a riff on the Defiant Ones slash Hell in the Pacific slash Enemy Mine. Any of the stories were like two people from different sides of a conflict end up stranded together in this hostile environment, and then they have to fucking survive and overcome their prejudices and learn to work together and then become bros by the end. That was the original nugget of the idea for this. And granted, you know, his original idea was like, what if two guys are like stranded in this crazy wilderness hellscape that they have to survive, but one of them's a white guy and one of them's a Muslim. So it's like, uh, You know, again, on the nose, maybe a little bit misguided, which is why he's like, yeah, maybe this, you know, let's let's keep working through this, let's keep developing this idea.
1: A little bit of the nuggets still there between the Ed and James character, though, especially when they're out in the wilderness in survival mode. Oh, all the core of that is still there,
0: right? That is still the backbone of a lot of this story, just not those. Very post-9-11, this is the culture of America, these are the things we're grappling with specifics, right?
1: And that makes sense, because I saw this movie debuted at the Toronto International Film Festival on September 11th in 2006, ironically enough. Exactly five years after, yeah. yeah.
0: But yeah, the quote from Fezzedin is... Ultimately, I wanted to show how an individual's worldview affects how he or she deals with reality. Pheasanton was also closely following the status of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge okay. and how Congress was constantly challenging the right to drill for oil there, right? Like, that has been a thing through our entire adult lives. Yeah. It's like, we're sitting on all this fucking oil up there in Alaska. We just need to tap into and we'll be energy independent forever no we won't we're gonna burn through that shit in 10 years and it'll be like it was never there and meanwhile all this pristine wilderness is gonna be fucking destroyed we're probably gonna eliminate how many animal species yes tell me all about how the groundwater throughout the country where they've been fracking is not totally fucking poisoned sure I'll trust you he also witnessed firsthand how much snow coverage had recessed where he shot Wendigo, just a few years prior. And so he was like, Look, let's move much further north.
1: They have that as part of the script in the movie with James. Yeah. Because Ed does that whole bullshit that Republicans do, like when they bring snow into Congress, they're like, What about all this global warming business? And even Ed's like, Look at all the snow. It's run. cold yeah. right now, right here in this one place. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. But like James is like saying like the temperatures keep rising in the area where they are. Yeah. Well
0: Scientifically, it also doesn't have as much to do with that as it does with all these other factors. Like, let's be real. Yeah. You and I grew up in the South. The entire time that we were children growing up, did we have fucking flooding and hurricanes and thunderstorms and tornadoes and shit like as fucking frequently as has happened like in the last yearly. decade to fifteen? <laughs> yeah. No. That extreme weather, that extreme flooding, all that extreme because everything is fucking warming, there's more moisture in the air, like doesn't have to do with hot or cold as much per se totally. Like it's not just that, right? But yeah, Pheasant like saw how much the snow had just completely fucking disappeared from that area. So he wanted to move further north. So they go on a scouting trip to Alaska to kind of go check out where they can possibly shoot.
1: Yeah, I read about this stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. He discovered that okay, A, there
0: is no fucking production infrastructure in Alaska. The state just does not
1: fucking support film. I mean, the there. the entire population of Alaska is like the population of a small city in yeah. mainland U.S. Yeah.
0: So, like, there just is no infrastructure to support film production. That's the A, right? The other thing was, they went to these oil fields at Prudhoe Bay, and apparently shit was really tense. The oil companies were like, very fucking paranoid and secretive did not want them filming there did not want them talking to anybody like they were very very stay out of our fucking business and kind of hostile toward them and pheasant was like "Yo, the vibes are bad it was really fucking weird being there also the iraq war had literally started just days before they were up there so there was also this very jinguistic kind of vampiric anticipation from all these oil people that was extremely distasteful you know it was just a lot of okay fucking rub our hands together time to go get that oil baby you know so he was like the vibes were bad there was no infrastructure to film in alaska but what he was genuinely struck by was how fucking bleak the wildlife refuge was in the dead of winter. It's gorgeous landscape once it's all thawed. Beautiful grass and wilderness and animals and shit, but during that part of the year it is desolate. It is nothing. It is just white blank as far as the eye can see. And the
1: movie does a great job of capturing that, by the way. (laughs)
0: Yeah. And he was very taken by that idea because even though you are in a completely wide open space there's something claustrophobic about that feeling of nothingness. The oxymoron of it is what he was fascinated by. They also visited Canada and he was like, yeah, the vibe that oil rigs in Canada was completely different from the American rigs. Like they didn't give a shit, they let us film, they talked to us about processes and, you know, we learned a lot about oil company culture and rigging and how all that shit works. So he was like, it was good because we got a lot of context for like what we were writing in the script. But on the other hand, we discovered Canada like also was not good. It didn't have the look and the feel that we wanted. It was not flat enough. It was not cold enough. It wasn't what we needed. So they end up shooting in Iceland, partly because that's the location that works. Yeah, They also have a great film commission and the film commission threw in money for the production. So it just kind of worked out all around to go there. And kind of like I mentioned earlier, a lot of Pheasanton's mindset with the ultimate script was that, you know, again, post 9-11, in the midst of the Iraq war, so much of where his mind was, was just what I said earlier. No matter what wars, no matter what political disasters, no matter what terrorism is currently coming, like that shit's going to come and go. And it sucks, but like, that is what it is. But if we lose the earth, everybody's fucked and there's no coming back from that. That is truly a cosmic, terrifying thing to consider.
1: So one thing I do like, despite what I think is his failure to show any ambiguity, I do like the idea of what would be the tipping point. They explore, like, what would be the straw that breaks the camel back, And in this case, the straw that breaks the camel back, or at least they're hallucinating their thinking is what is happening, is our little drilling expedition up here in this last part of Alaska that's untouched. And they don't even get to the full drilling. It's just... The domino effect. The domino yeah. effect. The Earth itself senses what they're about to do. It did sound a little reminiscent of Ages Fifth holding a sweating, drugged-out Morpheus going, human beings are a virus, and like just doing that whole speech.
2: I'd like to share a revelation that I've had during my time here. It came to me when I tried to classify your species I realized that you're not actually mammals. Every mammal on this planet instinctively develops a natural equilibrium with the surrounding environment, but you humans do not. You move to an area and you multiply and multiply until every natural resource is consumed. And the only way you can survive is to spread to another area. There is another organism on this planet that follows the same pattern. Do you know what it is? A virus. Human beings are a disease, a cancer of this planet. You are a plague, and we are
0: the cure. I'm glad you thought of fucking Hugo Weaving as Agent Smith. And not fucking Marky Mark as a high school science teacher just going, What's like, what, what if the fucking plants are, like, all fucking trying to kill us? <laughs> like, what if, like, something is, you know, happening?
1: Bro, speaking to get a Patreon, I know we keep plugging our Patreon, we have got to do that movie for a commentary track. Oh, shit, we will eventually, yeah. <laughs> so,
0: that's another thing that I do appreciate about this movie is the fact that James LeGros' character repeatedly says I don't know what's going on. I can't tell you what's going on. All this science is too fucking new. We've never experienced any of this before to base any of our conclusions on. This is all new shit, and we're just trying to figure it out as we go.
1: And again, to mirror it to real life, it's like anytime climate scientists go in front of Congress to explain their findings. And science is a thing that's continually building, right? Yeah. It's data upon data. and It's continually building. It's theories being disproven and proven. So like then you have these idiot conservative, I mean everyone, but mostly conservative. Let's be honest, lawmakers who are just like none of them know the science. Yeah, none of them, none know them the science, actually
0: like, know the shit that they're trying to explain. But you do have a giant half of them that's being fucking purposely hard-headed
1: about it. Yeah, so yes. the, they're saying like the data only shows this in eighty percent. What about the other twenty percent? Like that bullshit drives me up a wall because it's people who don't understand basic fucking scientific theory trying to like yes end you and critique every little thing you're saying like science is definite but the data is not the data is always changing because we don't know everything and that's why science exists because we're fucking studying it but yeah it flip what you just said the data is definite the
0: science is not we have the actual hard data like that right yeah that's what i meant you know proven (laughs) the science part of it that we're still trying to figure out what to do yeah but yeah i appreciate that aspect of this movie that there is still that doomed kind of frustration around. I don't know what to tell you.
1: Yeah, because Ed is like, you're not sure. You're the expert. Yeah,
0: I am just here to observe what I am seeing and report on it, but I don't have the answers to this. I don't have the solution to this. You know, I'm just as much fascinated and disturbed by what I'm seeing as anybody, and I'm just here to, like, catalog the end of the world, essentially. So anyway, yeah, this movie premiered at TIFF in 2006. Fessenden convinced IFC Films to distribute the film the next year, and uh, it got a very, very small theatrical release, and it grossed under a hundred k. Because I mean, it only got released a handful of cities and played for like a weekend, right? So this was mostly a movie that went to rental stores, and you know, has since been on streaming on and off. Currently, it is included in a Larry Fessenden Blu-ray collection from Scream Factory that also includes Habit and Wendigo and I think No Telling which is like his very first movie and it's 30-40 bucks. So like it's a pretty good deal to get all of those movies that otherwise are like this is their only, you know, physical media release, but they've all been kind of on and off streaming over the last couple of years on various sources. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, we talked through the production as far as the cast goes. You know, we mentioned Ron Perlman who is always a delight. Always, always a delight a to delight. see on screen. One of my favorite fucking actors yeah, easily. Seems to be a genuinely cool guy in real life. He kind of broke out in the caveman epic quest for fire,
1: yeah, because find out this is our first movie I think we've done with him in it, huh? Yes,
0: and it won't be the last because he has been in a shitload of horror stuff. Yeah,
1: he's in a shitload of everything, but yes, yeah.
0: So he's also then in a lot of very interesting and weird genre stuff. He's often under makeup. He's just one of the most fascinating looking guys in the history like he's just such a fucking wild specimen of a man his voice his
1: presence everything is just oh, yeah so...
0: so fucking cool yeah yeah he's in the name of the
1: rose
0: he is the beast in the beauty and the beast tv show that ran for several years he's in fucking sleepwalkers he has a great long collaboration with Guillermo del toro mm-hmm. he's literally in his first movie chronos He's in the adventures of Huck Finn with Elijah Wood playing pop Finn. That might be the first thing that I like really ever saw him in. And he's kind of fucking terrifying in that movie because he's just playing the like drunk, abusive dad. And there's kind of these fucking scary scenes where he's beating the shit out of Elijah Wood drunk off his ass in this cabin. And Elijah Wood has to like stab him, you know, to like get
1: away. He doesn't turn stuff down either. Oh, he works. He's in direct video movies. He's in big budget movies. He's all over TV. He's done voice work from everything from Adventure Time to Batman. So yeah, ding, ding, ding. There's our Batman
0: animated series. He's the voice of fucking Clayface in multiple Batman animated things. He has been the voice of Clayface for fucking ever.
1: He's also been Slade, Deathstroke, and a lot of stuff too. Yeah. I would fucking love... If the next Matt Reeves Batman movie was just like Batman
0: colon Gods and Monsters and it was like Killer Croc and Man Bat and Clayface. And it would be really fucking cool if they just brought him in to play Clayface in that
1: movie. <laughs> uh, anyway. I'm waiting for a serious live-action Batman movie that leans heavy into the actual super villainy of Batman's rogue gallery. Like, Well,
0: not just that, but literally none of those three characters have ever gotten a real good live adaptation.
1: I know, and Clayface is such a good, interesting... Clayface is so fucking cool. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, anyway,
0: yeah. He's also in City of Lost Children, which is a fucking wild Jean-Pierre Jeannot movie. Which City of Lost Children directly leads into him being in fucking Alien Resurrection. Yep. He's in the Island of Dr. Moreau, which is also a fucking insano production that we've talked about before. He does voice work and narrates all the Fallout games. Yep. To go back to that video game that is now a TV show that we just mentioned earlier
2: War. War never changes. Since the dawn of humankind, When our ancestors first discovered the killing power of rock and bone, blood has been spilled in the name of everything from God to justice to simple psychotic rage. He's in
0: Blade Two again, working with Del Toro, and Hellboy. He is fucking Hellboy. He He is is
1: the perfect casting for Hellboy. The
0: embodiment of one of my all-time favorite comic book characters love him he's great i fucking love both of those movies they're goofy and fun they are nothing like the comics but i really do love those two deltora movies yeah he is in the tv miniseries desperation which i know we have brought up a few times on here i sell the dead drive pacific rim he's basically the lead in sons of anarchy going back to adventure time he plays
1: the lich one of the major antagonists yeah main bad guy most cosmic horrific character in that entire show but yeah he's, he's great most recently he stars in transformers colon, rise of the
0: beasts as the voice of optimus primal the fucking God damn gorilla it. monkey machine <laughs> anyway yeah apparently his performance as hellboy is what directly inspired the casting in this movie Fezzin Saw Hellboy was like, that's, what that's I want. who I want that, in my movie. Works. Yeah. Let's do this. Yeah. Call up Ron. Let's get him on the phone. James Agro is the other lead that we mentioned plays Hoffman. A lot of TV stuff. Also has been in a lot of horror. He's in Near Dark. In Phantasm Two. he replaces the actor that played Michael in that movie. Drugstore Cowboy. The Rapture. Point Break. Singles. Living in Oblivion. Safe. Enemy of the State the fucking psycho remake like dude was in a lot of really good 90s indie cinema the thing that put him on the radar for me is a weird retelling adaptation of macbeth called scotland pennsylvania that's a 1970s burger diner joint murder Macbeth. i remember seeing the dvd of that in one of the rental stores that we went to growing up and i was just like what the fuck is this we had just done Macbeth in school i remember renting that and watching it and being kind of intrigued and uh kevin corrigan that's also in this movie that plays motor is also in fucking scotland pennsylvania there's a lot of interesting cast crossover here he is in david Fincher's zodiac at just the very fucking end and it's wild to me look at him In this movie that we're talking about, where he looks like a dude in his late 30s, and then look at him in Zodiac the next year, they were probably shot concurrently, or he possibly even shot Zodiac before The Last Winter. The way that he's done with his hair and glasses and the clothes that he's wearing and everything, he looks fucking 20 years older. It's wild. He's also in Kelly Reichardt's Certain Women that I mentioned earlier that Fezzanin produced. Uh, which also has Lily Gladstone from from Killers of the Flower Moon. So yeah, he has been in a lot of interesting shit over the years. Connie Britton that plays Abby, she kind of popped first in the Brothers McMullen. She was on Spin City for years, which smoke show in Spin City. (laughs) She is in the movie Friday Night Lights and the TV show Friday Night Lights. She is also one of the leads in the first season of American Horror Story. Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. She's one of the leads in the Nashville revival from a couple years back. She was most recently in White Lotus Season 1. Zach Guilford that plays Mackinder, the young guy that goes fucking bug nuts and wanders
1: out into the wilderness. Definitely the creepiest performance, I think, in this movie.
0: Yeah. So this was his debut. He goes on to be in James Gunn's Super. He is also in the Friday Night Lights TV show. The Purge Anarchy, which I argue is the best of the Purge movies, that's the one that's essentially, what if the Punisher existed in the Purge universe? In the Purge universe, yeah. Just taking out all the fucking villains. Where most people, I think, will recognize him from now, because I saw Last Winter like a decade ago. I saw it just a few years after it came out. So I had no idea who this guy was at this point, but watching it again the other day, I was like, holy shit, it's him. He is one of the stars of a lot of the recent Mike Flanagan shit. He's in Midnight Mass, he's in The Midnight Club, and he's in The Fall of the House of Usher, which Heather and I are still currently in the middle of watching.
1: Yeah, I've been waiting for you to bring that up on recommendations, by the way.
0: We're still making our way through. We're almost done. So yeah, I'll talk about it when we're fully finished with it. So it was very interesting to see, like, holy shit, this guy has basically not aged in 17 years, essentially. He looks very, very much the same baby face in this movie as he does in all these recent Mike Flanagan projects. Kevin Corrigan that I mentioned a second ago plays Motor. I always like when he shows up because he's usually some kind of scumbum in whatever he's in. He's in The Exorcist 3, Goodfellas, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> True Romance, Living in Oblivion, Bad Boys, Buffalo 66, Trees Lounge, Slums of Beverly Hills, The Departed superbad, american gangster, pineapple express, unstoppable, knight of cups, the king of staten island, your favorite. That's fucking buck wild. That's truly buck wild. He has worked with Scorsese, Michael Bay, Tony Scott, Ridley Scott, and Terrence Malick. That's fucking buck wild. To like work with that many major, major, major directors.
1: I do always love when character actors like him are in these movies because when you look at their pedigree, they may be character actors, but they have how much rub shoulders with
0: industry grades. Yeah. <laughs> Other interesting fact that I discovered that I did not fucking know since two thousand one, he's been married to Elizabeth Barrage, the like lead from the Fun House by Toby Hooper and Amadeus. I had no fucking clue that they were married and have been married for years it's also wild to me too because she's seven eight years older than he is and she was literally acting in movies when he was still a child dawn in this movie is played by joanne shenandoah this is basically her only acting role she is a singer multi-instrumentalist grammy winner like she is a major major first nations musician okay she is a member of the oneida tribe she fucking opened Woodstock 94. But yeah, she's played at Carnegie Hall, Madison Square Garden. She's played at the White House. Like, she is a major figure in First Nations traditional music. I listened to some of her shit the other night. It's very new agey, maybe a little bit too much for me, but it's good. Her voice is gorgeous. I can see why she was such a big deal. That's just not a corner of music that that whole new age side of it is just not something i've ever really gotten into but yeah she unfortunately died recently from liver failure so she just passed jamie harold plays Elliot, who is kind of the other assistant guy to james agro's character this is the guy that i kept rewatching this movie thinking like oh this is our born victim this is gonna oh, be oh my
1: nose bleed oh, yeah this yeah. is gonna be the guy
0: that like bites at first and i forgot no it's not him He's in natural born killers, Tu Wong Fu, I shot Andy Warhol, Aaron Brockovich, a lot of TV stuff. Pato Hoffman, who plays Lee. Again, a lot of TV stuff. He's in Wild Bill, which was the like Walter Hill movie with Jeff Bridges as Bill Hickok. And he was, you know, heavily involved with a lot of Native American rights stuff. So, yeah, he has, like, a very interesting career outside of acting.
1: His fate in the movie, like, I'm going to say fate because this is one of the more ambiguous things, is pretty harrowing because the last thing you see is him basically almost crying, staring out into the, like, wilderness, and you're hearing the hoof noises that the ghost creatures make, and then next thing you know, he's just gone. Yeah, they just find his fucking empty boots. He basically got spirited away. Yeah. Yeah and then
0: lastly larry pheasant himself is one of the fucking pilots on the yeah, plane that born victims
1: yeah shit yeah. <laughs> yeah and like usual i
0: love that he's just dicking around making jokes and then immediately like plane crashes head chopped off yeah <laughs>
1: just fucking eats it those three boners got totally shit wrecked in this movie oh yeah
0: well yeah that is all i've got as far as the production goes yeah. so i hope that Gives everyone a little bit of context and information for this movie because, again, I think this is a very interesting example of a very auteur independent director who has always been involved with horror, pointedly making a movie to discuss something that he is passionate about that has a very unfortunately loaded political context in these trying times, right? So, like, I appreciate the fact that. You know not only did he go for it, but he made something that is pretty memorable, yeah I would say all said and
1: done I mean even though I didn't respond to it totally positively, I've been thinking about this movie since watching it,
0: yeah, which that's always a good marker when you see something like this, and it does just kind of stick in your head for the next several days, right yeah,
1: even if I didn't necessarily like it yeah i I'm glad yeah. it makes me think about it and to our listeners, again, I recommend you should at least watch it and I would love to hear some opinions. I would love to hear if you think it's too preachy beats you to the head. I'd love to hear like what your takes on are the ambiguity and the hallucination angle. I'd love to hear what you think. I think this is definitely worth a watch, and I think this movie needs more eyes on it, because I didn't know a fucking thing about it until we talked about it. Cool. I think that's going to do it for this episode. Do you want to lead us out, Aaron? Hell yeah. All
0: right. well yeah, This is Watch If You Dare, a horror podcast uh, where me, your movie monster boy, Aaron and my cowardly Craven co-host Derek discusses horror movies and we dissect the fears, phobias and social relevancy of said horror movies. Thank you all for joining us. We greatly appreciate it as we go into the holiday season. I know everybody is very busy, so we appreciate any time that you spend with us. It means a lot to us. Please definitely check out our Patreon, which we've mentioned several times already. That helps us keep lights on for the show and keep things affordable to host and pay for our streaming service that we use to record with and help pay for child care and all the other back end things that we have to shovel out money to like make this show possible. So any support we appreciate. Yeah. Thank you to all of our current patrons. We love you guys. Thank you for your
1: support. Once again, patreon.com slash watch if you dare. Yes,
0: definitely go check it out. Just five bucks a month. Literally the cost of a cheap shitty cup of coffee at this point uh, we've got lots and lots and lots of shit on there at this point for you to check out and you will instantly <laughs> bless
1: you <laughs> oh, that loosened a lot of oh yeah oh, <laughs> donate yeah. now yeah. listeners <laughs> oh, check it out
0: so anyway yeah you will have instant access to all of that content as always check us out on social media at watch if you dare on twitter and Facebook. We have our Spotify music playlist that is pinned to the top of the Facebook. Speaking of music, please check out my little brother Jesse Mansfield's stuff over on Bandcamp. He produced and recorded and performed our music bumps at the beginning and the ends of all of our episodes. He's got some great fun shit on Bandcamp at Opossums, Big Clown, Party Gator. He's got a lot of side projects that are all pretty interesting. So go check this out, support him, throw him a couple of bucks and get you some good music. Aside from that, any uh, final thoughts on The Last Winter?
1: Yeah, Aaron. I mean, we decided to record out here. We shouldn't be here, Aaron. We shouldn't record here. We're grave robbers. It's coming up from the ground. Ghosts. I mean, what is Sally anyway but fossils, plants, and animals? From whatever millions crunch, of years crunch, ago, crunch. Oh, <laughs> no, that's not Windigo's Make Windigo. wee 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 wee. I feel like I saw something with them where, like, a Pokemon. They say their name like Windigo. That might be in Marvel Comics, actually. I don't know. Wee
0: wee wee
1: No, they just sound like my dog Bootsy whining.
0: <laughs> wee.